นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสังอ a question that faces all of us, I'm sure, from time to time, and perhaps is there all the time and just surfaces from time to time, and that is, how can we take care to not lose sight of what's important? How to not get too distracted? There are obviously some things in life that uh, are more important than others. And we've talked about this many times before. And there are some things that we value more than others. And how can we stay in touch with what's most important and what's most valuable to us? And I'm not talking about What other people say is valuable or important, like the experts, uh, including spiritual experts. Uh, I'm not talking about what external authorities have programmed or taught us to think is important and how we we should stay in touch with that. What, I, what I'm referring to or trying to refer to is the fact that there are things that we already, in our heart of hearts, uh, hold to be really important. And there's a real risk that we can get distracted. These things that we value most can become obscured. There's so much in our lives that's so sort of important. And things can appear sort of important and and sort of relevant. And and these things, the sort of important level, can become a distraction. I hear that people are now getting concerned about Christmas shopping. Apparently, uh, somebody told me it's what happens after Halloween. As soon as Halloween's finished, people start their Christmas shopping, and it becomes a major concern, and, and uh, it can become a distraction. Or something I am, I, I can become distracted by is what's going to happen next Saturday when the All Blacks play the Wallabies. But This is a, this is not really important. These these are these are kind of things that are somewhat important, and and political issues as well. They they can dominate the scene if we're not careful. And so I suppose this is what we're talking about: is how to take care that the sort of important issues don't dominate the scene and overshadow. The truly important matters of life, mm. because if we don't make conscious the things that, in our heart of heart, we feel are truly important, well, then I don't think in our hearts we can say that we're committed. I've been contemplating this word commitment. I, I contemplated a lot actually. It's, it seems to me a very important word, and you've probably often heard me tell the story of. 
of uh, that interview with Martina Navratilova quite a few years ago now when the interviewer was asking her, how come you're so good at your tennis game? And you know, lots of people are play tennis, but you're exceptional. What makes you exceptional? She said, well, I'm committed. And the interviewer said, well, lots of people are play tennis. She said, no, no, they're not committed. They're only involved. She said, it's like with, you know, with bacon and eggs. The pig is committed, the chicken's just involved. And there is, in other words, <laughs> there is, if you're committed, there is, in other words, a real sacrifice. And the pig has made a sacrifice. <laughs> A serious sacrifice, and and for us to say that we're committed, there does need to be, you know, joking aside, there does need to be a willingness to make a sacrifice. And if we have raised up the things that in our heart of hearts we profoundly value, that we have considered as really important for ourselves, again, not just because some authority told us these are important, but because in our heart of hearts we feel, yeah, this matters, and I don't want to lose touch with this, then to really make that conscious, raise it up, and to know we value it. And then we can say that it, we can be committed to it and by making it conscious. If it's not conscious, well then it's questionable whether or not we can say we're committed. I think last week I mentioned a talk I'd given recently in in Manchester on the subject of peace and and again recently a, a Quaker group was here and they, they were asking what do you do to make the world peaceful or what is the Buddhist path towards peacefulness and, and one of the most important aspects of that question is to check as far as I'm concerned is to check to see is the fact that we value peace something that we're really conscious about? Do we regularly make that conscious? Because we can say we value it and we can feel a valuing of it, but that doesn't necessarily amount to a, a, a commitment to peace or a conscious valuing of it. As people who are committed to the Buddhist path, I know myself that I, I make a point and I recommend to uh, people who show an interest in these things, that if they want their, their uh, heart practice to progress, well then it's important to make the interest, the valuing that we have of wisdom, compassion, purity, really conscious. And, and this is what I do when I perform the ritual of bowing to the, the Buddha image, to make this really conscious and to express it with the body to express it with speech, when we say the words of the chanting, to really make it very conscious what we're saying. And the reflection on the divine abidings just after the meditation a few minutes ago, notice that you can just be repeating these words, may I abide in well-being, may everybody be having a good time, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Recommend rabbiting on, but not really mean it. And there's a big difference, depending on the quality of attention that we bring to what we're saying and doing. And so particularly in, in this area of, of of raising up that which we really value into consciousness, as we do in rituals, to take care. Because this is powerful, this is not 
this is not insignificant. It could be insignificant. We could relate to rituals and just, I'll just put up with it. I really just go to the monastery to meditate, and it is lovely to meditate. I mean, the silence in here this evening is really lovely, and it's lovely to have people here and to sit together. Some of you might feel, well, we just put up with the chanting uh, so that we can have this nice sitting together. And fair enough, if you find the chanting is really disagreeable, well then you can just exercise patience. But there is another way of approaching it, and that is to to look and see what is being, what is behind the ritual, what what is encoded in the symbol of the Buddha image, what is encoded in the the, the ritual of the puja, the bowing. This is really a devotional exercise aimed at bringing into consciousness that which we value most, wisdom, compassion, purity, the path of mindfulness. And in so doing, we we form a deeper connection with these things. So I I mention it so as to not just dismiss it or think, well, it's just something that we can do, maybe people do at the monastery, something that everybody can do in their daily life also. I, I encourage people to begin and end every day by bowing and some people introduce their own little rituals of maybe reciting the precepts. We live in a busy, active world. We're surrounded by people who are not uh, necessarily committed to integrity in the way that, that you wish to be. And it's easy to get distracted and confused and, and, and possibly uh, even pulled into compromise. And so how do we protect ourselves? How do we prepare ourselves better so that we're less likely to lose the connection with that to which we're committed and be pulled into distraction or compromise. Well, rituals are one way of doing that. And beginning and ending the day, consciously saying these things, I go for refuge to the Buddha, or I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha, and making this valuing a conscious commitment and repeating it verbally and making a gesture of bowing with our body. This this all helps. Another aspect of it is the another of this consideration of how to stay in touch with what is really important is to be aware of the quality of attention that we're working with. to make our commitment, our aspirations conscious, but also to realize attention is energy and uh, we've only got so much of it. And what we invest our energy in or what we pay attention to determines what we get back. So if we don't pay attention to that which we really value, well, the outcome is that we lose the connection. And this is traditionally why, as I understand it, why traditionally in most cultures throughout human history, there has been something like one day a week put aside for uh, pulling back from the uh, everyday life activities. In Christianity, it's the Sabbath day. 
Uh, the Buddhists, <coughs> we go by the phases of the moon, which is once about every seven days. And having a day that we put aside and we pull back from the everyday activity of being productive, being busy, and ideally giving ourselves a chance to be more inner, because that's the only way we're going to uh, remember stay in touch with what's important to us. Otherwise, it, it's very easy to get distracted and our attention can become dissipated. If we appreciate this as a convention, uh, then at the very least, once every seven days, we're going to sit down and put some time into, put some energy into being still and being quiet. It would be good if, we, if it can happen every day, for 20 minutes every day, to sit quietly and and get in touch with our own direct feeling of being responsible for the quality of our attention. To know for ourselves, to read for ourselves, to be able to tell for ourselves, what quality of attention am I operating with? Is it mediocre, everyday, common common and garden variety attention, which just means I can get by without becoming too dysfunctional? Or is it the quality of attention whereby we can really give ourselves into what we're doing and to know the difference. Mm. Now we can be just zooming around doing this and that and what they call these days multitasking. Sometimes I, I'm multitasking in the morning. I've got a little sink in my cootie and I can be washing up some old cups and I can be boiling a kettle and I can be fetching the the cocoa off the shelf and, and make myself a hot chocolate and, and be preparing a telephone conversation that I'm going to have. And, and I can be doing three or four things at once and it's not necessarily very mindful. There's a fairly low-grade quality of attention there. And it's tiresome, really, to operate like that. But then I can also stop and notice, really just, do I have to be operating like that? Now, there are, maybe there are times when that's what's called for. And if so, well then, fine, we do the best we can. But if it's not necessary, let's pull back from that mode of multitasking and just do uh, monotasking. Just one thing at a time, one moment at a time. And I don't mean slowing down and, and becoming so, so slow that, that we don't get anything done, but just at a gentle pace whereby we're in touch with what we're doing. We're not letting the kettle boil dry or we're not breaking the cups or we're not spilling the milk or we're not saying the wrong thing on the telephone because we were caught up in something. And if we do that, well, I would suggest that we can for ourselves notice the quality, the different quality of life. Like the other day, I, I noticed what it... If I'm there doing it, just to hear the sound of the, the water going into the kettle. You just listen to the sound of the water going to the kettle. And just listen to it. And then to turn the kettle on. And the sound of the cup as it goes onto the sink top. And how that sound echoes around the room. And, and then the smell of the cocoa as you put it in the cup. And, uh, to really be in touch. And then what happens when you go to have the telephone conversation, actually, there's a greater quality of presence there. 
and then there's a, a feeling of actually being responsible and not losing touch with things that like I value uh, I value presence I value being able to be patient with things I value being honest I value being sensitive the things that I value are not compromised if there is this quality of attention there when we lose this good quality attention and we get dissipated and our attention becomes diluted and and then we can lose touch and lose perspective and get caught up in things that are only sort of important. So making our commitment, our heart commitment conscious and and working on the quality of attention we work with. And then also another important area I would suggest is to make a project out of getting to know the things that for us personally distract us. What are the what are the things that in my case cause me to lose perspective? What gets in the way in other words? What gets between me and what matters? Again we can have an idea of these things, we can kind of say, oh well, you know I I um, I get anxious about our sewage project. You know, we've got this ongoing headache of a sewage project. Actually, I don't get anxious about it because Tanpunya gets anxious. He gets anxious for both of us, <laughs> which I'm very grateful for. In fact, he gets anxious for the whole community, which is something we're very grateful to him for. But as an example, there's, there are things in our life that that we can know that we're getting anxious or distracted about, but not really raise it up and say actually this is unnecessary or family business uh, if you're distracted with family problems and and you can spend a lot of time worrying about family problems when you know you've done actually you know you've done your best and the problems are probably always going to be there and there are some things you just can't do anything about but there can be this underlying feeling of obligation I should be doing more when in fact you've already looked at it and you know you've done all you can do. Or the profession or your, your job. You can be distracted and never really put your job down and bring it home with you. And, and even though your wife or husband has told you that how unpleasant you are when you're distracted, you never really actually just learn to identify what a distraction and the consequences of being distracted are. So what I'm suggesting is that where we have these negative tendencies in our life to get distracted, to really make a project of it and to even write them down, to have a, uh, have a project book and one can, one can actually identify these things and if you've got one particular thing, like say maybe you get caught up in resentment maybe you've got a, you know, some family problems or work problems or health problems or whatever and resentment can be an ongoing negative distraction which makes the mind very heavy and dark and you lose touch with the with the goodness that's there, the goodness that you've touched into, the goodness we all have touched into at various stages of our life and that we trust in and believe in and value but this negativity can overshadow it and so we can uh, make a project out of it. You can have a, maybe you keep a diary anyway but you can actually keep a special diary, a resentment diary or a resentment project book and then we can uh, write down 
in there even, all the things that we resent. Instead of, in other words, instead of avoiding these things that distract us, these negative aspects of our mind that cause us to lose light, lose brightness, lose vitality, to really open up to them and uh, make a project out of it. Or fear, if you have a have a, uh, an endless gnawing, niggling fear tendency in your life. You don't quite know what it's all about. You've looked at it long enough. You've gone and done some therapy and found that there's nothing really there. It's just hanging around us endlessly worried and afraid all the time. But instead of just resenting it and, and uh, wishing it would go away, we can actually make a project out of it and have a fear diary or write letters to it. You can write a letter. I wrote a letter once. I remember one winter retreat. I came across all this fear and, and it was a mystery to me. What was it all about anyway? So I wrote a letter and then because uh, I felt the fear in my belly, I ate the letter and uh, swallowed it so that <laughs> it would get right to the right place. Now, I'm not recommending you do that because um, you know the ink might be poisonous and I don't want to take responsibility for anything happening to you. Just as a, you know, an example of creating a, a relationship with these things that we find are a distraction or an irritation to us. We don't have to be afraid of them. It's our life. It's our hearts that we want to get to know. It's our values that we want to be conscious of. So whatever it takes. And so I'm suggesting that, that we can keep a journal. And uh, once you get to know these things, you can... You identify them instead of always running away from loneliness. Have a loneliness notebook. And every time you're feeling lonely, well then get out your notebook and start writing about what it's like to be lonely. Today's loneliness feels like this. And, and instead of avoiding it, really making it very, very conscious. And if we are willing to do this, well then we will probably sooner or later come across the recognition that that uh, a lot of our problem with the negative states of mind is the fact that we've just been fighting them. We resent resentment. We're afraid of fear. Sadness makes us depressed. However, if we can bring them into mindfulness, bring them into awareness, well then we stop fighting. And when we stop fighting, all the energy that's been used in fighting these things becomes available. It becomes available to support mindfulness. And we actually, miraculously, suddenly we find that we can simply feel fear. Fear feels like this. Instead of I've become afraid, which is, might ha- be how it starts out to be, or, or I have a problem with loneliness, we can feel loneliness happening. This is what loneliness feels like. And we can write about it with some objectivity. I don't mean detached, split-off, unfeeling uh, state of mind, but with some perspective. We're not so pulled into it anymore. Another thing we might discover as we uh, actually engage and, and uh, look into these negative emotions that, that afflict most of us at some stage or other uh, is that if we are not careful we can easily be, just by paying attention to them, we can be pulled into them. And so I'm suggesting keeping a logbook or keeping a a project book, but it's also important to recognize that we need we need a positive context in which to work with these things. And some people will come across maybe their anger or their resentment 
or their fear or sadness and and say, well, you know, what I need to do is to create a conscious relationship with my sadness. And so they start keeping a logbook and they just get sadder and sadder and sadder and more and more miserable until they give it up and say, well, that didn't help. Well, it could well be the case that if that's all we do. But alongside that, we need part of that in that logbook, in that diary, is also skillful to pay attention to what we can do that shores us up or buoys us up or gives us a positive way of approaching these things. Now by this I mean something for example like resentment. If we're somebody who has a lot of resentment or we're in a state where we're feeling resentment or bitterness we can quite consciously and intentionally by way of experiment, not because somebody told us we should do it or good people do this kind of thing. No, by way of experiment, see, well, what happens if I dwell on the idea of gratitude? What happens if I dwell on the idea of gratitude and say, well, I don't feel grateful, I just feel resentful? Well, maybe I could feel more resentful if something like that had happened to me. Try imagining something worse having happened to us. Like imagine that we don't have any heat in this monastery. Now I am a bit disappointed about this ongoing sewage project that we've got. I've been living in this monastery for 12 years and it just seems to be one problem after another. Endless problems. When I first came here it was already this legal problem with Farmer Wake and in the 12 years I've been here, it's just endless problems. That's what it can appear like at times. And I am a little disappointed about that. But then I think, well, what happened if they turned the heating off? Say, so, well, that's worse than this problem. Much worse. Or if the roof leaked. I mean, look at this beautiful Dhammahor here we have here. My goodness. None of the other monasteries, none of the other monasteries have got a hall as lovely as ours. <laughs> now, of course, that's an opinion and some of them think their halls are lovelier than ours, but I happen to be of the view that this is the loveliest hall to sit in, and it's so pleasant, and, and sat in here for many hours, and one feels so grateful. Well, what happened if the roof started leaking? You know, if the rats started eating through the underfloor heating, and you know, or people broke their windows, or, or all these awful things that could happen. Well, then I start feeling grateful that they haven't happened. You know, I can feel a little sorry about the arthritis in my knees. And, and I do feel a little sorry about the arthritis in my knees, but well, at least I can still sit on the floor, I can still walk, and I know people who, who can't even walk. And, and so then little gratitude arises. Now, uh, these are small things, but I'm suggesting them as skillful means for giving rise to a positive quality of mind that then gives us the ability to hold more consciously, more carefully, more mindfully that negative tendency which is obstructing us. Mm. Same with the sense of forgiveness. Now you all know we have this forgiveness ritual that we do on New Year's Eve, which everybody is invited to come and join in. We, quite a few years ago now, we, somewhere along the line we invented this ritual of um, writing down on a piece of paper or all the people that we wanted to forgive for anything that might have happened through the year 2003, as it will be this year. 
anybody who did anything that we resent or feel bitter towards, we write down all the pieces of, we'll write down on one piece of paper all the names, and then also all the people that we want to ask forgiveness from on the other side of the piece of paper. You know, people that we might have just been a little less than kind or patient or compassionate or sensitive to. There's probably a few in there that we can think of. And we write all those down the other side of the piece of paper and, and then with a full conscious intention, a wish to let go of resentment, then we burn this piece of paper in front of the whole community here, everybody's together and witnesses bears witness to our gesture of, of, of wanting to let go of resentment. And, and as a ritual it clearly works for people because I think it happens in most of, if not all, of our monasteries around the world these days. And it's very nice to go to New Zealand and find they do it out there and I, I hear they do it in other places. And It's a ritual that works because we don't want to be burdened by negativity. However, just not wanting to be burdened by, burdened by it is not enough. We need to find skillful ways of creating the positive context, the positive environment of heart and mind, so that we're not actually pulled into these things. Resentment, bitterness, sadness, anger, fear. And also the finally to just to raise up again something we've spoken about many times before but I don't think we can't mention it too many times and that's patience to not underestimate the power of patience when we catch ourselves being caught in distraction yet again say, well, I'm, I know these are things that are important in my life and I, I rededicate reconsecrate my life to Realizing these things that are important, staying in touch with the world, compromised again, distracted again, lost again. And, well, we can get all judgmental about it and take a position against ourselves and fight ourselves and say, I should know better by now. Well, actually, that's completely, completely the opposite of practice and a, and a complete and utter waste of time and not anything that anybody with any sense would encourage whatsoever. But we keep doing it. So what we can also do is actually just stop and look at it and say, well, judging ourselves is, is, is a complete waste of energy. I don't have to do it. I'm absolutely not obliged to take a position against myself. It's a choice to take a position against myself and judge myself for, for failing again. We're completely free to do it and we're completely free to not do it. We're completely free to make that choice. And so in support of pulling back and letting go from the, the heedless and unfortunate uh, habit of judging ourselves, it's really helpful to be patient, to know that this is just a habit, that if we can recognize the power of patience, the power of patience, no? to, and to really value, again, as I started off by talking about, to, to make a conscious valuing of patience, to raise them and say, patience is not... It's not just a nice thing that some people talk about or that you read about. Patience is a profound transforming force. And if we've ever experienced it, to make that conscious and to see what happens when when you know somebody's somebody's really behaving unpleasantly 
and you're feeling desperately in the need to tell them where they're going off. But you know that you're angry about it, and you probably know that if you open your mouth while you're angry, it's not going to help. And so, well, I'll just be patient. I'll just be patient with myself, patient with my anger. And then you're patient with your anger. You say, oh, anger, I can endure anger. It's just anger. It's just, it's just something that I'm doing. It's me that's doing the anger. They're not making me angry. It's me that's doing the anger. I can be patient with it. I can endure it. Not bitter endurance, saying I shouldn't be angry. Just say, anger, anger. This is what anger feels like. I can be patient. I'm perfectly willing, doesn't matter how long it takes. It's not a permanent condition because I remember when I wasn't angry. I can remember when I wasn't angry and so obviously anger is not a permanent condition. So if it's not a permanent condition, it'll end eventually. One day, one year, one lifetime. <laughs> it might be a bad dose of anger. You say, I don't mind how long it takes, how many lifetimes it takes. I do have faith that anger isn't permanent and I will just patiently endure. Patiently endure until its anger fades away. And, you know, it's wonderful. <laughs> it might even fade away without you noticing it. It's miraculous sometimes. You say, wow, what happened there? I thought, it, I thought the world was going to come to an end. And then when we've learned to be patient with our own anger, big surprise, we suddenly can be patient with this other irritating person. In fact, it's not them that's the problem at all. It's our anger all the time that's the problem. It's us that we're having to be patient with. Well, that's something I have complete authority over. I don't have to worry about anybody else. It's me that I've got to worry about. It's my passionate upthrusts of anger and rage and indignation that's the problem. Well, that's a wonderful realization because before I somehow thought it was other people that were making me suffer. And so the power of patience can be really transforming. And if you do have such an experience where you realize that you do have authority to be patient in your life, then you also have the, the authority to generate a force of goodness that doesn't only benefit yourself, but also benefits others. If other people realize we're not going to get on their case, even when they're behaving unsuitably, that helps them. So this evening I, I wanted to um, raise up for our consideration the, the issue of, of how to stay in touch with, with the things that matter to us most, um, not because there's anything particularly looming that I'm aware of, but I do know that as the winter comes on and the days get shorter and Christmas and New Year gets busier, that um, the tendencies to get distracted and to get negative can increase. So hopefully this consideration this evening will, will help us remember that there is something that we can do. There's something we can quite practically do about staying in touch with those things that, value, that we value and matter to us most. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.